Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Krista, if we haven't met before. Uh, I'm a part of the content team here at Brew Church. Ooh, this fam, working for me. Uh, Also Fabian's wife. Uh, And today I am continuing the series we've been doing called Myths. And in this series, we've been, you know, talking about different beliefs that we've internalized and been living with. And we've just been examining them, uh, where these beliefs come from, uh, how they might negatively impact us, and what it might look like to exchange these beliefs for something more beautiful and true. And so far, we've discussed lots of different myths. We've talked about perfection, powerlessness, invulnerability, and settling. And if you've not been here, I would 10 out of 10 recommend going back and listening to them on the Brew Church podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find it. You know, uh, they've been so good, and this series has been really, really powerful. Uh, And today, I get to talk, as Ben said, about the casual myth of believing that you must sacrifice yourself in order to be loved, something that I, as a woman who went to college in an evangelical church setting, have never believed. You know, I've never believed that before. Uh, But a fun fact to know about me is that I absolutely hate all things scary. Like, I do not mess with scary movies on any level. Uh, The movie series Scary Movie, which is a series, in fact, meant to make fun of scary movies, is too scary for me. Like, I cannot handle when the grudge girl crawls out of that TV. Absolutely not. How is this funny? No. Uh, I also hate haunted houses. Uh, One year, I went to Worlds of Fun in October. Uh, And if you've ever been to Worlds of Fun in October, you know that they do this thing called The Haunt where, you know, they have haunted houses and people dressed up in scary costumes running around just like scaring the shit out of people. Uh, And they also have these areas called The Fright Zone where you're basically just like giving your consent for people to get like very near to you and scare you. Uh, and so none of this happens until the sun goes down. So like my plan was, you know, I'm going to go and when it gets dark, I'm going to leave. We had these free tickets and it was, you know, they're going to expire. So, uh, we go and we get stuck all the way in the back of the park by the Mamba and you got to get all the way to the front of the park to exit. And the only way to do this is by going through a fright zone. And so as a 21-year-old college student, I was escorted out of the park through a secret passageway with a parent and their toddler that had been trapped in the back. So it was me, Fabian, and a toddler and their parents. Uh, So needless to say, I hate all things scary. So it was my absolute nightmare when I hit that period in middle school where just like everyone wants to watch scary movies. Did you all experience this? Yeah, okay, why? Why does this have to happen? This was awful for me. Uh, 
And so for some context of my middle school days, I moved as a seventh grader from Wisconsin to Missouri. And so when I slowly began making friends and realized I had stumbled into a friend group that like loved watching scary movies on the weekend, I was just like absolutely screwed. It seemed like I had no choice but to participate in this. So every single weekend, I would push away every single one of my instincts and I would go and watch whatever sick and twisted movie that the group picked out to watch. Like, what was the alternative? Like, put yourself in like a middle school context, okay? Go back, I know it's tough to remember the middle school years, but remember how you were as a middle schooler. What was I gonna do, not go and get on MySpace on Monday and see the whole 30 like pictured album of the sleepover? I don't think so, I was not gonna miss out. And, and so every single weekend, I would just push down these feelings, I would go, and as comical as this is, I look back and I realize I was, you know, ignoring these blaring warning bells, my needs, like every single weekend, and I was sending myself a really loud message. Like, sacrifice your comfort. Ignore your needs. This is the cost of being accepted, right? This is the cost of having friends of belonging and ultimately of being loved and accepted by a community. This is what you gotta do. And as I think about this myth of unlovability, I think about two different conditions that we might internalize about this. One condition might be that in order to be loved by others, I must sacrifice and give of myself. And another condition could be that there are certain parts of me that are unlovable. So to be loved, I need to uh, hide these parts or remove these parts in order to be loved by other people. And oftentimes we learn these conditions in subtle or indirect ways, right? We often don't like attend a class where we learn all the conditions to be loved. We're taught these things. Uh, they might have come from a teacher or uh, an advertisement you saw repeatedly on TV, a show that you watched. It could have come from a partner, parents, a family member, or from friends. You might have gotten it from the media or a book or a song. And when we're younger, it seems like the conditions of acceptance and love are often tied to gender. Like good girls are agreeable, right? They're always kind, even to the detriment of uh, themselves. They're not loud, they don't take up too much space. Good boys are strong meaning that they like, you know, suppress all their emotions. Uh, they are brave, they're confident. And when we follow these conditions, we're rewarded with acceptance and then we translate this into love. And then as we grow up, the conditions often generalize. Like smart people can sit for eight hours a day and memorize facts and regurgitate them on exams. Beautiful people are thin, they're tan, but they're definitely still white uh, and they're muscular, right? Successful people make a lot of money. And again, we follow these conditions, we feel accepted, and we translate that into love. And I also think the church teaches a lot of conditions related to love. And if you grew up in a church or you spent a lot of time in a church uh, community, these might be ingrained into you, right? Like love requires self-sacrifice. Love requires hiding parts of myself. Love requires that I suppress certain desires. Gotta get a drink. 
so weird that I can drink while whilst preaching. Water would probably like better cleanse the palate, you know. Uh, you know, but take um, purity culture, right? This idea that what my body craves and biologically longs for is bad and wrong. My desires are wrong. My instincts are sinful. Or theology that a lot of Christians believe. I'm broken and not lovable as I am, and God needs to redeem me. Or that God wants and expects me to be selfless, right? This is a big one for me. Uh, I was often taught that I need to deny or sacrifice myself in the name of Jesus, right? Which led me to pour out a whole lot of myself for others until I didn't really have much left for myself. And this can be really beneficial for churches that, like, run on volunteers, right? I was praised for my self-sacrifice, The church loved that I was a people pleaser who didn't have great boundaries. And they loved it even more when I became an overworked staff member. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not trying to say that it's bad to love other people and give of yourself to people and make sacrifices. That's a beautiful part of love when it's done within, you know, appropriate boundaries. Of course, I don't think we should be so egotistical and self-centered that all we think about is ourselves. What I am trying to say, though, is that it's damaging to sacrifice yourself to the point where you're disconnected from who you are, your interests, your needs, your hobbies, your values, your passions and interests, all for the sake of other people. It seems to turn loving people into people who feel bitter and resentful. And I think it's quite ironic that Um, The church speaks so often of God's unconditional love, yet to use scripture as a set of conditions to follow in order to be loved or go to heaven. The church both creates the problem of unlovability and then solves it, right? Smacking you across the face and then pulling you in for a hug. You're a sinner. You're evil. You're bad. But don't worry. If you commit your life to God, God will redeem you. God will spin this crap into gold. And I think it's important to note here that I'm, I'm specifically trying to use the word church and not God. Like, I think these are ideas that can be taught by the church because I don't think any of these ideas are God's ideas. And I've spent time, like, trying to untangle what is God from what is, you know, abuse that dr- the church can do, sometimes unintentionally, in God's name. But I also think we've internalized another condition, that there are certain parts of ourselves that are unlovable and that we need to hide these parts or remove them in order to be loved. And this is the way that it makes sense in my brain. Like, I'm a really visual person. And so um, to me, you know, I think we get this idea that a, a part of myself is bad. I hear this story. Like, I, you know, maybe... Um, it's something that's different about me than other people. Or maybe, again, it's like a message that we heard from someone else. To take it literally, like, let's say I have an extra finger. Okay, let's just roll with it. I have an extra finger, and I hear this story that that makes me wrong, or this is a defective thing about me. This is bad. It's weird because it's different. Everyone else is, like, grossed out by it. And so I cut it off. Like, in a sense, I sacrifice a part of myself and I meet a condition. And now I think I look like everybody else, right? 
Now I, I will fit in and no one will be inconvenienced or bothered by me anymore, my weird finger. No one's going to have to make like a six-fingered glove for me. Other people might be less inconvenienced, but now I'm bleeding a lot because I just cut off my finger. I'm in pain, and I'm going to have to go get that stitched up and heal this wound. And even though it'll stop bleeding eventually, there's going to be a scar. And so we keep doing this over and over again, removing things that we think are defective about us. We bend, we contort, we perform until one point we don't even recognize ourselves. And if, if we're loved at that point, if that version of ourselves is loved, what does that even matter? It's not even real. I was writing this coming uh, right off of the Taylor Swift concert. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't help but think of one of Taylor Swift's songs, Mastermind. Uh, where are my Swifties at? Any Swifties up in here? Yeah, wow, silent Swifties. Okay. Uh, if you're not a Swiftie, which it seems like a lot of people in the room aren't, please don't just dismiss me as another basic white girl. I am a basic white girl. But I think there's some truth to this song, okay? Okay, so try to stick with me. So this song, Mastermind, is about a relationship, naturally. It's what Taylor does best. And uh, what she's saying is, like, on the outside, this relationship looks magical. It looks effortless. It just happened by chance. But what she believes is that this relationship is magical because I created it to be that way. Like, I planned this all out. I basically tricked this person to love this version of me. And this is what she says in the bridge. She says, no one wanted to play with me as a little kid, so I've been scheming like a criminal ever since to make them love me and make it seem effortless. This is the first time I felt the need to confess, and I swear I'm only cryptic and Machiavellian because I care. This speaks to the human condition, right? Hopefully I just converted a bunch of Swifties, people into Swifties here, right? They're like, oh, I'm going to look up that song. What was it called again? Mastermind. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> but this speaks to the human condition, right? Like, we desperately want to be loved, all of us. And we've been told that we need to hide what we perceive to be our deficits to be loved, that to be loved requires contorting and hiding and scheming and planning, and I think the lie that we're sold here it's, is that if we just follow these conditions, right, if I just sacrifice myself enough or suppress the parts of me that don't follow the rules enough, then I will finally feel loved. And, and if I don't feel loved yet, it must be because I'm not doing it right. And I don't think the problem is that we're unlovable. I think we feel unlovable and we believe that we're unlovable because of the stories that we've been consuming. And this story of unlovability, it can be traced all the way back to a concept that was highly influential in Christianity, this idea of original sin that was coined by Augustine. And Augustine created this whole narrative based on an interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve which led to this belief that our instincts are wrong and that we are rotten to our core. Yet ironically, I think if you read the story of Adam and, 
Adam and Eve as a metaphor and not as like a historical account of how humanity began, it actually negates the entire belief of original sin. This idea that you must follow conditions in order to be loved. Don't eat from this tree and then you'll be good. And so here is like my spark note version of the story of Adam and Eve, the way I understand it. So in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they're living in the Garden of Eden. They're like living their best life. They can do whatever they want, whatever their hearts desire, except God has warned them against eating from this one tree. And one day a snake comes along, tells Eve, actually, you can eat from that tree. Like if you want to, you can eat from it. The reason God doesn't want you to eat from the tree is because if you eat from it, you're going to be all-knowing. And you're going to be on the same level as God, and God doesn't want that. Side note here, maybe like the apple is just a metaphor to illustrate the danger and harm that we cause to each other when we consume this idea that we're all-knowing gods. So Eve eats the apple, and then Adam does too, and later blames Eve for a choice that he made with his own autonomy. Uh, <laughs> you know, classic. Um, so they eat the apple, and then they realize that they're naked, and they feel ashamed. And so they grab some leaves, and they make some clothes for themselves. And in doing so, they come up with a condition. Naked equals shame. It is shameful to be naked. I should cover up myself and hide parts of myself from others. Nakedness, possibly a metaphor for vulnerability. It's shameful to be vulnerable. Who I am underneath what you see is bad and wrong and must be covered. So when, when I hear nakedness in my mind, like in parentheses, I think vulnerability. And so the story continues. Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden and they hide, which further internalizes this condition they've made. Nakedness equals shame. And God calls out to them, where are you guys at? What's up? They're playing some hide and seek. Um, and then they reveal themselves finally. And Adam explains, like, we heard you coming, and so we were afraid uh, because we were naked. And so we hid. And so now the word nakedness, vulnerability, and shame have become interchangeable. Notice he didn't say, like, we were naked and we felt ashamed of our nakedness, so we hid. No, we hid from you because we were naked. That's shameful enough. And then God said, who told you you were naked? And to me, this isn't God, like, yelling at Adam and Eve or being condescending. He's not saying, like, who told you you were naked? This is God with, like, warmth and gentleness saying, who told you that story? Like, who taught you that condition? Did you, like, consume that story from the tree that I was trying to warn you about? Who said that your nakedness was anything to be ashamed of? Because let me tell you, like, nakedness to me doesn't mean what nakedness means to you. It's not our naked self, our real, raw, authentic self that leads us to feel unlovable. It's the consumption of the conditions followed by the covering up and hiding 
that leads us to feel unlovable. So what would it look like to both, you know, examine the conditions we, we think we need to meet to be loved and to free ourselves from those conditions? Like to consider for ourselves, who told me this? Where did this idea come from? I think oftentimes we can experience healing simply by naming something and recognizing what's happening because in doing so, we're validating ourselves and our experiences. Like what might it look like for you to embrace the love that just exists within you, that exists around you? Like what kind of practices could you do to move from knowing in your mind that you're loved to like feeling loved in your body? And as you apply this to your life, I, I want to encourage you to do so with self-compassion and gentleness and warmth. I think it can be really easy when you start to like realize these conditions that you've believed to, you know, start saying things to yourself like, oh my gosh, why do I believe that? That is terrible. And then like further, you know, shaming yourself about it, right? And so if you notice that happening, I encourage you to like have that same warmth and curiosity. Like who told me this? Gosh, like I'm hurting that like I feel this and I believe this. I think examining these conditions too might also feel like, you know, pulling out the Christmas decorations and getting out the lights to decorate the tree and it's like a giant ball. You're like, great, now I have to untangle all of this. I think it can feel like that. It can be overwhelming and it takes a lot of patience to untangle it all. It might stir up some feelings and it's natural to like chuck the whole thing aside and in a rage and just like need a moment. Like it'll be there when you come back. American author John Steinbeck once said, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And my favorite author, Glennon Doyle, added on years later, and now that we don't have to be good, we can be free. May you free yourself from whatever conditions you've believed you need to follow to be loved. May you begin to believe in your core that who you are is good, and beautiful and loved. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone.